Thanks, Tom. Great to be with you guys. Jill and I both missed you very much these last few Sundays. Our hearts are just so full to be part of Rimrock, to be part of you and with you here. We are so grateful to God for making us part of this body, and um, we've, we don't like being away, so thank you. So this morning, as we continue in Romans, um, I uh, looked back the last two Sundays while uh, I was gone. I went back and I listened to both Nick and Bill share out of Romans 8. And I just got to say, I was so blessed by how God spoke through them. And one of the things I love about the preaching team is you see how the Spirit of God aligns the right person for the right passage to share. And that was so clear the last two weeks, how they handled Romans chapter 8, which is really the, the, the climax, the, the summit of this beautiful gospel, this good news of Jesus culminates in Romans chapter 8, and, and they shared that culmination so well. But they also shared very truthfully and faithfully to the scripture that this glory that we have in Jesus isn't free from suffering, it's not free from pain it's not free from hardship but it's a a glory that will endure that's redeeming the suffering that's making all things new and then the the greatest promise of all is God himself his presence the Romans 8 says that his spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God (laughs) and that's why we can sing this morning that's why we we can smile and we can celebrate because we are the children of God and this incredible promise that the love of God will never, ever leave us, that we cannot be separated from, no matter what we go through, no matter what we face, the love of God is with us, it's for us, and it cannot be removed from us because of what Jesus has done. What a beautiful, beautiful promise. Now, most of my growing up uh, was around hills and mountains. I love the hills, I love mountains, and I remember from a very young age looking up and saying, I wanna be up there. (laughs) Have you ever done that? Have you ever thought, I just wanna climb that hill? In fact, when I uh, first came here, one of the first weeks I was here, I was looking at this cliff face right here, and I said, I wanna be, I wanna go up there. So Drew Meyer and I, we climbed to the top of that, (laughs) because there's this, desire to be on top, to see the view, to see the, really a glorious thing, the, the beauty of, of being in a high place. And that's where we've been in Romans 8. But if some of you are climbers, you know the hardest part isn't necessarily going up, it's going down, right? In fact, I was reading a little bit from a, in a scientific journal about climbers who climb Mount Everest. And um, as you know, that's kind of the ultimate achievement in climbing. But Um, many people don't make it. Many people die, but very few die on the way up. In fact, only 15% of all those who die. But 50% die on the way down. So it's the descent that's dangerous. And this morning, we are going to begin our descent. And, And there is a glory and a beauty in the descent because when you're going up, you can't see the view behind you. But when you're going down, you can see the whole expanse of the glory of the view. And if we use that metaphor to think about all that we have looked at already in Romans, of of being justified by, by faith through grace 
through Jesus Christ, that we are being sanctified, we're being transformed, we're being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that we're being glorified, where God is, is creating a new glory for us that's realized in this life, but even more with the hope of eternal life that is being prepared for us in Jesus Christ, the redemption of all things, as Nick preached about two weeks ago, of all of creation is being redeemed. And so we have that view on the way down. We have that view in it. And we're going to get in place in Romans after chapters 9 through 11 where we're going to work out our, what the gospel looks like in our daily lives. It's going to be very practical. But before we get there, we have to take a pause and descending the mountain in verses 9 through 11. And, and Paul's going to be looking at a very specific issue, the issue of Israel. Because this was a, a close issue to Paul's heart because he was a, a Jewish person. He was born an Israelite. In fact, he said, I am, I am a true Israelite. He lived the full Jewish experience and he was prepared by the best Jewish teachers. And he was opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then he met Jesus <laughs> and everything changed. His life was turned upside down and he became a passionate, zealous follower of Jesus, completely committed to the gospel. But then he has this problem. Is God faithful to his promises to Israel? And that is what Paul is going to be addressing in chapters 9 through 11. Would you stand with me as we read chapter 9 of Romans? I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, and that's good news for us, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? 
But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of, lump of clay some pottery for special purpose and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he has also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the children of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. And as it just said in Isaiah previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left as descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. What shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. It is written, See, I have laid in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. You may be seated. So you may be wondering, like I am wondering, how in the world are we going to do this in 30 minutes? <laughs> how are we going to cover this? Well, there's no way we're going to get all of it and that's why I encourage you to, to pick up a study guide and, and dive in deeper into this yourself. This, this word is available to you to study, to discover as we do this in community together and the Holy Spirit will guide us and lead us. This is a difficult passage and many people have stumbled over these words. I'm going to break this up into three sections this morning. The first one, we're going to talk about Paul's anguish. We're going to talk about God's sovereignty. And then we're going to talk about Israel's stumbling. Now, Paul is addressing particularly in this passage Israel. But there's application for us. Because we have the same questions. We have the same anguish that Paul had. But maybe not towards Israel, but towards other things. And so... Hold on to this, realizing that he's talking about Israel, but there's application for each of us this morning. And so let's talk about Paul's anguish. Paul here uses some of the strongest words in the New Testament describing a deep, deep longing for the people of Israel to know Jesus. He discovered that Jesus was the greatest treasure, and he wanted them more than anything to know that treasure. I was thinking about this, these verses, one through five, in light of what's happened recently in our world. If you've been following the news, there were some boys who were caught in a cave in Thailand. And the whole world's attention was drawn to these, these 12 or so boys with one adult lost in a cave, unable to get out. And the resources of, of many nations and people came together to, to embark on a rescue operation. And it, it was a beautiful, I think, example of, of the power, I think, of, of what, what, wants, what God wants to do in saving. And, and that's in us as human beings. And you see this, this 
great desire to save these boys. And one of the men was willing to die. He died in the process of saving them. And so I think that is the, that is the, the, the reality of what's happening here. Paul is seeing the great rescue mission of God. <laughs> we too, like those boys, are lost utterly in sin and darkness, as Romans chapter 1 states so well, that, that we, in our own foolishness, had ended up completely lost in darkness of our sin, unable to save ourselves. And so God embarks on a rescue mission. He sends Jesus not to condemn us, not to blame us and point the finger and say, see, you shouldn't have gone in that cave. No, God didn't send Jesus to condemn us, but to save us. <laughs> That's the good news. And just like those rescuers, they didn't go in blaming, they came in to save and rescue those boys. And they were even willing to lay down their lives in the process. And that's what Paul is telling us here in verses 1 through 5. He's saying, oh, I wish, I long for the Jewish people to know the treasure of Jesus. And he has made it his mission in his life to share the good news of Jesus with them. And he's even willing to lose his own life in the process. Paul was willing to suffer so that they might hear and know that Jesus saves, that Jesus didn't com come to condemn them, but to save them. And that is what Paul is doing here in verses one through five. But then we get to verse six, where Paul brings up the reality of God's sovereignty. Why have the Jewish people not responded completely to Christ? Some have, many have. Paul himself has responded. The disciples responded. Many Jewish people responded, but not everyone. And Paul is wrestling with that. Why does not everyone respond to Jesus? Why does not everyone see their need to be rescued, to be saved? And so Paul is wrestling with that. Now I just want to say something here that's really important. Many Christians have divided over this issue of God's sovereignty. In fact, whole denominations have been formed, whole churches have been formed around this issue. One thing I love about what Rimrock is part of, an association of churches, is we have said, we are not gonna divide over this issue. <laughs> we are committed to the gospel together, and so we're not going to form sides in this. We are confident that the Bible reveals to us the nature of who God is, and so we can rest in that. And that's where I want to rest this morning, not to take up a position or to blame those who have taken other positions, but to look at what the scripture says about God's sovereignty and be okay with the tension of it. There is a mystery here. We, we're not going to have all the answers. We're not going to understand the complexity of all of this. And some have even said, they're no longer going to be Christians. They're no longer going to believe in God. But you cannot escape this issue. Even in atheistic and secular circles, they are still wrestling with whether things are determined beforehand or if we have freedom to determine our own destiny. People don't know. We don't know. It's a mystery. There's a tension there. What we do see here clearly is that God is sovereign over all things. You cannot ignore that in this passage. And here is where Paul starts out and where we need to start out and understand. It's based on the character of who God is. If we have a misunderstanding of who God is, it, it distorts 
the whole discussion about sovereignty because you could quickly end up in, in areas of cruelty and, 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 and almost abuse if you misunderstand who God is. And many people have a misguided view of God because the Bible is about God. It's not about us, it's about God. This is revealing to us who God is. And Paul is very clear here. God has not failed in his promise. Over VBS, we had many kids here, and we sang a great song. I'm, it was such a beautiful song as the kids were singing this out. It says, God is faithful. He's f- the one who promised is faithful. The one who promised is faithful. <laughs> God is good. <laughs> that is the greatest truth that the Bible reveals, that God is good. You could, you could grow up in this world and see the harm and the destruction all around us and you can think this world is messed up and think that God is that way, but the Bible tells us God is not that way. He's holy. He's different. He's not like us. If I look at myself, there is no goodness in me. I'm, I'm bent towards selfishness. I'm bent towards pride. I'm bent towards all these things. But, but when I look at what the Bible reveals who God is in Jesus, I see goodness. <laughs> I see purity, I see love, I see all that I long for in him. God is good, and he's faithful to his promise. That, my dear brothers and sisters, is the foundation of our faith, the goodness of God. We, told, we are told in Romans that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross. And so his goodness is revealed in in a a radical self-sacrificing love for our benefit. God's goodness is resulted in our benefit, our good. We must hold on to that truth as we talk about sovereignty. If we don't understand God's goodness, this discussion of God's sovereignty will, will end up being destructive to us. So we must understand the goodness, the faithfulness of God. This passage in in verses 6 through 29 addresses the question of who are God's people? Because God had chosen the Jewish people, the Israelites, and if you read back in Deuteronomy, God says something amazing. He says, I didn't choose you because you were better than other people. He said, I didn't choose you because you were smarter or, or more special. He said, I chose you because of my own love. So God chose the Jewish people to accomplish his salvation plan, but he tells them, don't be prideful about this. <laughs> and, and that's a good reminder for us because we're here this morning and we've received the treasure of Jesus and we have life and we have so many good things in him. That, that's not a place of pride for us. God, God didn't choose us because we were better than others. And, and so what Paul is saying here is who are the people of God? Well, it's not based on, he says, human descent. And it's not because they are just Abraham's children. He says, he says it is because they are the children of the promise. That is key. They are the children of the promise. And who promised? It wasn't that Abraham was so wonderful and made this great promise. No, God promised. It's based on God's promise. You see, our faith is not in ourselves or any other man or person or even religion. Our faith is in God, God himself. He is 
the treasure. He is the object of our attention, of our trust. And it is God who promised. And so who are the people of God? It is the people that God has promised to save. It is the people that God has promised to save. And my dear brothers and sisters, this is good news. Just this past week, I was sitting with someone who was in, in anguish over a, a death of a loved one, and, and, the, and there, was the, there was a struggle there, and, and, and I, could, I could remind them that, you know what, salvation wasn't based on what they did or how they felt or what they accomplished. It was solely based on Jesus Christ. And that gives us great assurance you don't have to be a super Christian. You don't have to have it all together. It is that confession, that trust, that faith in Jesus that saves us. It is God who saves us. We do not save ourselves. And so it is God's promise that defines the people of God. That is good news. We don't get to decide who's in and out. God does. It is God's promise. God is faithful to his promise. The third thing we see about God's sovereignty is Paul asked this question, is God's sovereignty unjust? Is it unjust? Look at verse 14. What shall we say? Is God unjust? And this is where people stumble many times on that descent. They, they begin to wonder, is it fair? <laughs> and, and we like to define fairness from our perspective, but let me just say, dear brothers and sisters, our perspective is skewed. We are not God. <laughs> and I see this all the time with my kids where they'll be fighting about something. You'll hear, it's not fair. But they don't see it from my vantage point as dad. <laughs> they only see it from their limited vantage point. But, but their perspective is narrow and small. And in the same way, our perspective is narrow and small compared to God's perspective over all things. And so God doesn't see his mercy as being unjust. We tend to focus on the wrath because we don't think we deserve it or other people deserve it. But if we understand what the scripture reveals to us, we all deserve the wrath. None of us deserves the mercy. Do you see what Paul is saying? The, the, the perspective of God is, is one of incredible love and mercy and that he has chosen to save <laughs> because in his power and his glory and his perfection, he could, have, he could have done away with all of us. But instead of judgment, God brings about salvation. Remember Romans chapter one, what is the power of God? It is for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so God is exerting his power to save. The whole emphasis of the biblical message is not one of condemnation, it's one of salvation. And that is totally unjust. <laughs> it's not fair that God would choose you or me or anyone to experience the beauty and the glory and the goodness of God. Yet, in his as Paul says in Ephesians 1, it's, it's lavish generosity. It's, it's a lavish, abundant generosity that allows him to show mercy. The definition of mercy is receiving what we, what we do not deserve. And so we deserve judgment. But God, because of his love, because of his character, instead of judging us and, and condemning us, he saves us. 
He delivers us. He rescues us. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so verses 19 through 29, we have the wrestling match. So if God is absolutely sovereign, if it's his promise that alone saves, if it's his mercy alone that saves, that if it totally depends on him and not on us, then what is, what is the human responsibility, right? That's, a, that's a, an appropriate question. It's a, it's a logical question. And Paul doesn't ignore it. He faces it head on. And I love that about the Bible. It's honest. It's truthful to the real struggle that we have as human beings in our, in our limited perspective, in our limited understanding. The Bible doesn't ignore our deepest questions, our hardest questions. It doesn't necessarily answer it the way we would like in all the detail. <laughs> but there's something here that I think we need to hold on to. There is no specific question to the specific ways that God's sovereignty is exerted in our lives. There's this tension. There's this tension that God is using all things, that all things are being worked out in this world, in this life, in our lives, in different ways. He's sovereign over all things. And, and, and the danger here is twofold. One, we could become fatalistic. We can just say, throw up our hands and say, I give up. Everything's going to happen and I don't have any part. And that's wrong. That's not biblical. The Bible does not teach fatalism. In fact, the Bible teaches that there's great responsibility and great privilege in being image bearers of God. We have responsibility. We have a part to play in the plan of God. The other danger is that we become self-determining, meaning we, we, in a sense, raise ourselves up to a position of saying, I'm going to work things out, I'm going to figure things out on my own, and that is a danger as well. And Paul addresses that danger here in these verses. And I think the question here that we have to wrestle with, and I love what C.S. Lewis says, after we've overcome every vice in our lives, the snake of pride is always there. It's always there. Because deep inside, I, I think all of us have this God impulse. We kind of want to be God. <laughs> we kind of want to be in charge. And, and that's dangerous. That gets us in trouble. That the, the whole story of the Bible is one of, of men and women raising their fists against God and, and opposing Him, rebelling against Him. And so Paul says in this issue of God's sovereignty, we must not do that. He says, if God alone can save, if he is the one who gives mercy, then who of you would say, why does God still blame us? Who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? And so Paul makes these questions, these honest, good, appropriate questions, but something we must look inside and say, is there pride or is there trust in God? Is there pride or is there trust in God? You see, our trust is in the goodness and the faithfulness and the character of who God is, who he's revealed himself to be. And so in our pride, there's things that we cannot demand of God. We must trust him. And I know what this passage is telling us is hard for us. It, it, it's hard because we want answers. <laughs> Why has this happened? Why do things happen the way they do? We don't have the answers. 
All we know is who God is. We know who he is. We know his intention is good for us, is to save us. And this question of pride is an ultimate question of what is life about? What is life about? And here, my dear brothers and sisters, the Bible is very clear. It's not about us. It's not about us. It's about God. God is life. And life is only found in Him. And here is the great mystery. We must lose ourselves in order to find that God is life. I love what the Westminster Confession says. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever it's about God's glory you see the treasure isn't us figuring it all out determining life for ourselves no it is losing ourselves into God God alone is worthy of glory God alone is worthy of our lives God alone is the source of enjoyment all joy is found in him All peace is found in Him. All love is found in Him. All that is good is found in Him. And we must, the Bible says, come to the place of faith in God. What does Paul say? The righteous will live by faith. This is where the whole gospel rests. Our interaction of human responsibility and God's sovereignty comes to this point of faith. Faith in who God is. Faith in what God has accomplished and what he has promised in Jesus. Life is ultimately about Jesus. We must, each of us, come to that point. But then we come to the third part of this passage, the stumbling. And Paul comes to the conclusion that Israel stumbled. They looked at Jesus and they stumbled. And as far as application for us today, we too can look at Jesus and stumble. And Paul says, I, God says, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. And so all of mankind, every human being, every man and woman will ultimately come face to face with Jesus. And either they will stumble or all shame and guilt will fall away. There's only two options. There's only two options when we come to Christ. Either we will believe in him, trust in him, be drawn to him, or we will resist him and walk away. And so Israel encountered Jesus so different than what they expected. They weren't expecting the Messiah to be born of an unmarried virgin. They weren't expecting a refugee to Egypt. They weren't expecting a man who had no palace, no home, not even a pillow to lay his head on. They weren't expecting a man who would be rejected by the religious and political elite. They weren't expecting a man who who gave himself to the poor, to the sinners, to the outcasts. They weren't prepared for a man who died on a criminal's cross between two thieves. It was too scandalous. Grace was too scandalous. And they weren't expecting that Jesus would rise again from the dead and defeat sin and death once and for all. And they weren't expecting that the only way would be through him. 
that Jesus alone would be the gate, (laughs) that Jesus alone would be the path to life with God. They weren't expecting it, and they stumbled. But there's something in that stumbling that I think is an encouragement for us. We will all stumble, but as we stumble towards Jesus, we must, in a sense, lose our pride and our self-righteousness. So either you rise up and say, no, God, or you fall to your knees and say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. I need your grace. I need your salvation. I need your love for me. And we must, in a sense, die to ourselves. And Paul sums this up beautifully in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the transformed life. And I love what Rimrock already has this beautiful word called the exchanged life. That's what it is. (laughs) We must, in a sense, come to Jesus and stumble and be totally broken of our own selfishness, our own self-ability, and we must fall to our knees and say, Jesus, you are the life, and it is only in you and through you that I can come to God, and only in you and through you that I can live. Without you, I cannot live. And it is that replacement of our life. We die. The old Ben is dead. The new Ben has come because Jesus has come. The old you is gone. The new has come. A new creation, a new glory, a new reality is being made in all of us. This is the exchanged life. This is the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. I'm going to invite the worship team as they come up. Tom, I, I burst on Tom's surprise. He's going to sing a song here um, that's really special to me. But as we sing this, I want you to think about our need. Our need is for an absolutely sovereign God who is over all things. And our trust is that he is absolutely good. God is good. He is faithful. And the greatest thing we need is God himself. And the greatest thing our world needs is God himself. And next week, we're going to hear in chapter 10, how will they know unless someone tells them? And so the greatest treasure is God himself, and we will trust in his faithfulness.